I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. I am so delighted to welcome to Twice Upon a Time podcast luminous, absolutely brilliant person generally, but the co-host of Reply All and Serial, Emmanuel Jochi. Welcome this is such a pleasure. No, no, no. It's it's such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, when I told my mom that I was going to be interviewed by you, she was like, oh, wow. Like she she remembers you. I, I can't exactly remember it, but she remembers you jumping off of something really, really, really high on Blue Peter. Yeah. And an aeroplane, in an fact. Aeroplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Several, several aeroplanes, several very high up aeroplanes. Including one from 25,000 feet. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing what one will do with a camera pointed at you. That's all I can say. I believe it. I believe it. Thank you so much for choosing the book you chose. Tell us what it's called. Uh, So it's called uh, Danny Champion of the World. It's one of those Roald Dahl books that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, But uh, I have to say, it's always stuck in with me since I read it. I think I read it when I was seven or eight. That's really little. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I distinctly remember it because it was the first real book I feel like I read out loud to like my mom or something. Uh, but it's funny and then we'll get into this, I'm sure. But rereading it, I was like, oh, it's got, it's, it's, it's a little dark. <laughs> it's darker than I remember. <laughs> you are right. We will get there. And it's a lot dark, I think. A lot. Yeah. Um, where, where did you first read it? Was it at home or at school? It was at home. Uh, I think... It was one of, I was young enough then that I think we, I remember we had a school library at the school I went to. I was living at the time, I think I had just moved to Belgium with my family. I was born uh, in Streatham in South London. And then uh, we like moved because of my dad's job to Belgium. And uh, yeah, I I remember it was like at school. I think I got it off of like the school library uh, and then brought it home. It was one of the situations where the teachers were super lax. They would just let you pick a book to read. And I distinctly remember picking this book to read. And my teacher at the time was being like, oh, okay. Like (laughs) probably that will be one where your parent reads it to you. Uh, But no, I ended up reading it to my mom at home every night for I think like a couple months as she was cooking and stuff like that. uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, so where were you, sitting at the kitchen table? I was one of four uh, kids, and we were all two years apart. So uh, we were all really little. So they're just like babies running around and toddlers running around all the time. Where, where, where do you come in that order of the four? I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm the oldest, and uh, I'm the only boy. Uh, and so I think... If I'm remembering it correctly, I feel like it was one of those things where my mum, God bless her, she always tried to give everybody individual attention, even though it was kind of chaotic. And so I imagine probably we're in the kitchen. My sis- my baby sister was probably in her high chair being fed. 
my mom was making like a bigger meal for like the rest of us but what would happen is she would be like okay can you peel some potatoes or do something or wash whatever and uh maybe in between tasks you want to read to me um uh and so we did that for years and i was reading i started reading really early i think i was reading just like you know children's books like regular page turners at like four or five Mostly because I think it was just a thing to keep me busy. <laughs> like my mom could keep track of where I was. I was learning a thing. I was getting more confident in the thing I needed to learn. Uh, and so by the time I got to seven, yeah, Danny Time of the World didn't seem like a super intimidating book to me. Uh, and so, yeah, I remember I was probably standing in the kitchen. My mom was probably cooking and I was just like standing reading it to her. And we would just do that for hours. Tell me what the book's about, what what you remembered it being about and what you've discovered it's now about too. Right, because <laughs> those are two actually different things, it turns out. Uh, so what I remembered it being about, and I think the thing that so resonated with me as a child, is I remembered it being about this boy, Danny, who had the world's greatest father. Like, um, his dad is this amazing person who could do no wrong and who... And both of them together had this great adventure where they decided to steal a bunch of uh, and poach a bunch of like pheasants from a nearby farm or something. Uh, and that was kind of I remembered that and I remembered just like it being really funny <laughs> and laughing with my mum a lot about it. That was what I remembered it being about. I didn't realize that there's a lot of class politics in this book in like a pretty major way that now it's yes those things are still there it's still about like relationship between like his dad and like his son but really i understand it now to be a book about like a dad kind of like who's sheltered his son from like the realities of like their situation like they live in like this poor kind of rundown shack that like is attached to the gas the petrol station where they work and live and they live very close to sort of like the haves this guy mr hazel who owns like all of this land uh and is feeding tons of pheasants like royalty every day while people in the next door town are really suffering <laughs> um and it's basically a tale about this man who is bringing up his son to basically see the world in this way uh, and is almost sort of indoctrinating him into like, well, this is what life as a like have not is basically. Um, and like, yeah, there are all of these different moments in the book where I was just like, oh, wow, that's that's quite serious. Like, I think there are things as a child where I found it quite funny just because I think some of the imagery uh, was just so bizarre or different to me but it really is a dark book and really what you're watching is a nine-year-old which is how old the main character danny is having to all of a sudden become a bit of an adult overnight in like a pretty serious way those themes run so much through this book of of mm -hmm. a child beginning to observe the world through adults eyes with everything that involves having to realize how flawed adults are even even totally. his father, because his father mm -hmm. is revealed in about chapter three, I think, suddenly says to him, I'm going to tell you a massive secret. And you can imagine as a child, you think, what? And, you know, and he says, I'm a poacher. And for a start, he doesn't know what that means. And then totally. throughout the book discovers that this poaching is completely justified for them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because this guy, as you say, has all the land, all the pheasants, and it's really unfair. Plus, 
they then involve everybody around them in this. I mean, by the end of the book, Danny realizes that 90% of the place where he lives is in on yeah. this, <laughs> is in on this in various ways, which is, again, extraordinary, isn't it? Because as a child, you, yeah. you, you are so conscious of the agency that adults seem to have and that you imagine mostly it's good. And then to realize totally. that in this community, they're all at it. Yeah. They are all, but completely benign and actually to a good end, the even distribution of wealth plus getting, mm -hmm. getting some of what they've got and also getting one over on them a lot. Totally. Yeah. Because it's funny you mentioned that moment uh, towards the beginning of the book where William, Danny's father, basically, he almost like just decides like, oh, I'm going to come clean to my son about who I am, actually, and the way the world works. Just like, just like that. And it's funny reading it. I, I, this time around, I was like, oh, wow, because I don't think now as an adult, like I was reading the first couple chapters, they spend so much time talking about like, how wonderful the dad is and great. And I was like, okay, that sounds like what I remember. And then all of a sudden, Danny wakes up in the middle of the night to realize his dad has come home from being somewhere. And he's just like, where did you go? And his dad's just like, he's, he's actually who I am. Here's what I've been doing. And yeah, I, I think as a child, that really hit a chord with me because I wanted to feel that way with my, with my parents, uh, I think. Uh, and actually, I think through reading this book, by, because I was reading it to my mum, like, uh, I think we bonded a lot because I think I was also at an age seven or eight when I was starting to actually learn things about the world I was in. I'd moved to Belgium. Uh, we were a black family who'd moved like across the channel. Um, we'd left kind of like the safety and like what we knew in London to, to go there. I mean, it was really the first time in my life that I was having encounters at school at different places. Like that taught me about like, race right and racism uh and class in that way too so i was having an experience in my life at that time when i was coming home every day and sort of sharing what was happening with my parents um and then sort of saying well that's here's what that interaction actually kind of was probably uh and here's what it means and here's here's how we fit in 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 this world and so i think reading a book where that was happening albeit in a, in a much more interesting way than it was happening in my life, uh, was, was really, really, really great. Um, but I remember distinctively when Danny finds out that even like the local policeman is sort of on his side, I was just like, right. Like as an adult, I'm just like, right. It's totally like <laughs> everybody in this, everybody in this town, except for this really rich person, like is, is in on it together. And it is a remarkable sort of show at the end of class solidarity. And yeah, like banding together as a community to get through a thing. And, and the chap, you know, Mr. Hazel at whom this is all directed ends up impotent. In fact, the law is on the side of the poachers because it totally. apparently, apparent, uh, you know, if a, if a pheasant lands in your ground, it's your pheasant. And the same with deer, mm -hmm. whatever um, animal you might be after. This story, like a lot of Roald Dahl stories, is incredibly rooted in one place. And although yeah. um, Danny's mother has died when he was a baby, so he doesn't remember her at all, the fact that his father, who's a mechanic, and actually that's a recurring theme too, somebody who is in the mm -hmm. middle of somewhere rural, but is doing something 
really unrural. You know, he's mending mm-hmm. people's cars, but he's he's really rooted. He's he's one of this. Um, he knows where he lives. His place in it is really fixed. And yet, you had a very peripatetic childhood, so you didn't have those roots to return to. So something mm-hmm. in that must have really appealed to you. I was always jealous of people growing up who had like real built-in community you know um my parents god bless them i feel like wherever we moved uh so i mean i i started off living in london my family lived to wem in shropshire for a year when we moved to belgium then uh after belgium i ended up moving to united states where i've been now for it'll be 17 years this july which is a long time that is like in each of those places, I feel like my parents really worked to make sure that they had a community of friends and that we had a community that we could sort of fall back upon and rely upon. At the same time, I was always really jealous of my classmates or friends for whom they had relatives uh, like where they lived or even just like, you know, old, old friends of their parents uh, or even just like the institutional memory of a place existing in your family where it's like, oh, you are going to go to the school where I went to school. This teacher is the teacher who had your like cousin or blah blah blah. Like I, I just never had that, and so yeah, I was I always gravitated towards books where it felt like right. You have a character in a place, you can see them sort of being raised by like this sort of village, and I, I think that was really existent in a lot of Roald Dahl's books. Like I felt it particularly in this one. I remember Fantastic Mr. Fox, randomly, even though it's about animals, that's definitely a thing. A lot of Roald Dahl's books, James and Giant Peach, a lot of Roald Dahl's books are about belonging to somewhere and having like a good community of people. Yeah, no, I totally get that because my dad was in the army, so we moved around a lot too. And I, I like you, mm. I felt very envious of people who had that. Whereas if you don't have our background, I think you're much more tentative about imagining that it's a bit difficult to integrate. And actually that's happened to you professionally too, isn't it? Because you've gone into things like Reply All, like Serial, which are established brands. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet, there you are fitting in. Yeah, no, totally. I, I like, as a child, I think I really craved that stability. You know what I mean? And now that I have it, I think I'm constantly looking for ways to upset <laughs> it. <laughs> like, you know, I, I say I've been in this country for a long time, uh, but even within this country, uh, within the US, I've moved a lot. Uh, you know, I was in Ohio when my family first moved here. Uh, I moved to Chicago after university and I've been in New York. I spent time in Cleveland. Like I've, I've been everywhere um, and I do like it. I get a little antsy, I think, <laughs> if, if I have to stay in one place. But it's nice. It's nice to feel like, it's not so intimidating to go from point A to point B. Um, and that's, that's, that's really made a lot of difference in my, in my life, for sure. It's interesting, actually, talking about schools, that it takes quite a long time in Danny Champion of the World for him to talk about school at all. Yeah. And when he does, it's... it's it's almost an afterthought. He's quite glib about it. He, he says something like, well, I, ha- I had friends at school. But intriguingly, he says, I never brought any of my friends home because it was really important to me the time I spent alone with my father. And I thought, it's funny sometimes the voice in this book shifts. I don't know if you thought this too, from what Roald Dahl was brilliant at, which was becoming his mm. seven, eight, nine-year-old self, and something much more adult and watchful reading it now there are little clues to the man 
behind Danny, really a lot, and those sort of things. Bearing in mind, of course, that Roald Dahl's actual father died when he was three. Totally. So he did not have anything to base this imaginary, wonderful, sparky, naughty person on. <laughs> Danny's dad's approach to like Danny's education is, is basically, you're going to work in the shop with me as a mechanic uh, and become the best five-year-old mechanic in the world. <laughs> uh, and well, he says that then, only by, like, by the time I was seven, I could take apart and put together an average motor, which is, you know... Un- yeah, unusual unusual in a child totally <laughs> i mean i remember as a child being jealous of that actually because i think i always felt like you know my parents both had come from pretty like hard immigrant backgrounds my mom's family had immigrated to the uk from the west indies from dominica uh, and my dad's family had immigrated from ghana and you know, I was always regaled with tales about how they, like their childhood seemed more similar to Danny's in the sense that because of like the work that their parents and the responsibilities their parents had to take on in order to provide for their families, my parents and their siblings were often asked to really do a lot of things. So, you know, whilst complaining at me that I wasn't cleaning up my room, my mom would remind me that when she was my age, she would have to be cooking for like, you know, a whole family or something. That never works, by the way, does it? It just never... <laughs> nope. <laughs> just doesn't resonate. 100%. No, it flew over my head. <laughs> but I think the thing that did stick with me from those stories was this feeling of, right, so you were allowed to basically be much more adult than I am. And uh, I think part of me was jealous of Danny because I would have loved like to be able to take a part in Indian or something like that or to be given that level of responsibility instead obviously because of the sacrifices my parents had made uh they were very much about my education in terms of like pushing me forward but I also think in terms of a relationship with my parents you know my dad at the time was working crazy hours um, you know, and for his job and was like traveling a lot, a lot for work all the time. So I think for me as a child, the idea of a parent that you're just with all the time like that um, was, and a dad who was so, 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 so involved in that kind of way. Not that my dad wasn't involved, but like he wasn't able to be involved in that extent, I think felt so amazing to me. Um, uh, and also I was one of four kids. So the idea that you could be the only child. That's (laughs) that's really appealing. Totally. (laughs) I mean, that scene where Danny's dad, Danny realizes his dad has been out like hunting, basically. Um, it ends with them having like a late night feast, just one-on-one. And that, that would never have happened in my house. Never. Because <laughs> it would have woken everybody else up. I mean, my parents would have had like a terrible day the next day with a bunch of really sleepy children. That, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it is a fantasy. A lot of it is a fantasy mm-hmm. about that interaction, about the responsibility you can give a child. He's He's really clear always, and this is the theme in so many of his books, that most teachers are despicable human beings. And he includes a scene of a child being caned, which happens so often in his books, because I know he saw it. A lot. His friend at school was caned, and he never really forgot it, uh, either for himself or for his friend. But the idea that, you know, this, this clear view that you're allowed to have through the books of an adult world that you don't actually want to be completely part of, because you can already sense the responsibilities mm. are too great. But nevertheless, the bit that you're included in becomes super important, particularly when they do their um, extraordinary... <laughs> I don't know quite how to describe this. this the, the drugging of the pheasants through raisins that have got sleeping pills in. That is that is yes. quite a stretch. 
Totally. Or even just the the thing that I remember really, really laughing at as a child and that I remember because I think part of the joy of reading this book and reading it to my mum was my mum loved this book, too. There are almost like little nuggets in it that, of course, are very adult, that adults can draw things from. And I definitely drew enjoyment from this time, which is, you know, uh, William, Danny's father, talks about like how there are like... Um, basically like rangers who exist on Mr. Hazel's land who are trying to, you know, keep the poachers away. And basically that like, if they see you and like you run, like they will shoot you. And that basically there's not a man in town who doesn't have like <laughs> bullet scars in, in, poachers in his bum. buttocks. Poachers he, bum. Yeah, poachers bottom. Yes. <laughs> poachers bum. <laughs> just like what <laughs> yeah because it is, it is an air raffle isn't it it's not actually intended to kill but yes and one of um his earliest memories isn't his mother taking gunshot out of his father's bottom it's quite routinely you know because obviously that that was the price you had to pay and also there's a there's a description of the keeper that they bump into when they're on their final mission when he becomes mm-hmm. the champion of the world and the keeper at some point he's he's covered in spit anyway and he's sort of as he's talking he spits and he says you know, the spit landed and it looked like an oyster. And again, reading it now, I think that's adult role talking. Definitely. You know, most children don't have that point of reference. But nevertheless, even reading it as a kid, you think, ugh, that's disgusting and that's all you need. He was so attuned to the fact that children can cope with massive amounts of disgusting. Even and now as an adult, I agree with that. You know, I, I think sometimes we want to protect our children. And we definitely want them to, like, be introduced to things in the world, like, at the pace that's right for them. At the same time, children are like sponges. They're seeing different things and different interactions all over the place. And that ultimately shape you. So obviously, like, one of the things you've talked about is, like, for Roald Dahl, like, seeing people get caned was, like, a really, really indelible experience. Mm -hmm. Whilst I never, like... Caning was long, long, long outlawed in schools by the time I was in school. Like, I definitely, definitely, like, knew kids who were definitely getting smacked by their parents at home. Uh, uh, I was definitely one of them. And, like, you know, whilst it was nothing like what Roald Dahl used to talk about, like, it's one of those things where you are starting to question things. As a child, you're starting to question things about the way you're brought up, about the things that you're seeing. And it feels almost... And the unfairness of it. Yeah, and it feels almost like not honest to to admit that, that children are capable of, of thinking about the world in that way and are noticing the weird and the disgusting and the wonderful or even just the feeling. Like that scene, there's a scene early in the book where um, I think it's the first time you meet Mr. Hazel and Mr. Hazel comes up to the petrol station in the mechanic shop, which Danny's dad owns and runs. And, uh, you know, Danny is helping. And Mr. Hazel threatens Danny and basically says, you know, if I find prints of yours on my car, you know, I'll give you a good hiding. You know, I never had, like, as far as I remember, interactions like that with people. But I still remember being a child and watching my parents, particularly in Belgium, in a place that, they didn't speak the language uh whatever having interactions that were really uncomfortable and did make me feel a little afraid and you are looking to your parent for like reassurance and for an understanding of the thing and uh it was really interesting reading that now as an adult because you're just like wow like (laughs) um, that's so wild that someone would do that but right away even at that age like children are you are learning about like what 
other people think of you and like your family and where you fit in society. There are so many instances I can remember where like I went to a bank with my mother or like a supermarket or something. And even as a child, even if me and my parents didn't talk about it afterwards, I learned things about what people thought of us, particularly what people thought about black people from those interactions. I've always appreciated Roald Dahl's books, I think, because in a lot of ways, it felt honest to that experience. He gives a sort of fairness to it, doesn't he, as well? A kind of Mm -hmm. perspective that although people do bad things, he makes sure they suffer and they really suffer. You know, there's, there's there's nothing small about Roald Dahl's writing anyway. And he just lets you know that they will have suffered as they were meant to suffer and you know that you have to wait sometimes quite a long time but whatever that is you you get it back you get it back and you watch it happen too it's not it's never off camera is it did you perform the book at all did you become the different characters i really distinctly remember there were a couple times i actually read ahead so that i could read it better for her because i wanted her to laugh at the things that i thought were really funny it made me a much better reader because I was like so, so enjoying the act of reading it to her and realizing, oh, right, if I read it in an entertaining way or a good way, then like she'll really like it. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what was the last book you read to her like that? Oh, boy. <laughs> it was Ian Colfer's The Wishlist. That was the last book I think we, we read together. And by that point, it was sort of a, a family affair because my sisters, we were all two years apart which was more fun. I think I would have read it when I was maybe nine or 10. So a couple of years later. <laughs> Great audience here. I love that. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes so natural to do it. And I think it helped me because I was a very, um, I still do. It's funny, even now, like I host, you know, I, I worked on Serial, one of the biggest shows in the world. I, I host Reply All now. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll get an email or a message from somebody who's like, I can hear that you used to have a stuttering problem or that you used to mumble. And I do occasionally mumble. It's like a big problem for my producers. Not so far, Um, not here. But no, no, it's one of those things where I actually credit, you know, those reading sessions with my family. Those really, really helped me in terms of being able to talk and being able to have confidence that like I was being understood even. Um, yeah, Danny Chapman of the World is a big part of why I do my job, basically, or I'm able to do my job. Wow, that's, uh, that's so amazing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW. I've obviously read up about you, Emmanuel, uh, most enjoyably. <laughs> There's a little gap, though, between, you know, you at school and, you know, you're living in Toledo and joining various mm-hmm. super successful podcasts. And how, how did that happen? Where, where's the joining bit? Well, so I kind of wound up in, in journalism and in, in podcasting a little bit backwards. In in the UK, I feel like when you go to university, you sort of know what you're going to study. Like as soon as you, that's the big part of it. In the US, they're a little bit more flexible, so you can sort of change and do different things, even like halfway through. So I originally went to university for political science. Uh, my big dream was I'm going to be like Obama's like last speechwriter when in his final year i remember timing it out actually and plotting it out in my mind i was like i will be this old by the time obama is in his last term if he gets a second term and maybe i can get a job uh writing speeches that was like my dream i think coming into my last year of school uh, of university i had landed an internship working in u.s congress uh, for like my local congresswoman marcy captor who's the congresswoman for like my district in ohio uh, and that was a fantastic gig that summer it was wonderful but i was so bored <laughs> i was most bored i'd ever been and i remember a co-worker turning to me and just being like well we're actually going to be having a committee hearing on, uh, you know, segregation in public schools in America. There's this radio episode you should listen to in advance of that. Just just check that out. And so I opened that thing up and started listening to it. And it was this show that I somehow, even though my parents always listened to public radio in the US, I had never really ever caught. And it's called This American Life. Uh, which is, you know, a major radio program here in the US. They do documentary stories every week built around like a theme. I remember just listening to that and just feeling like whatever this is, I just want to be, I just want to consume more of it. So the rest of the summer, I was listening to more and more and more and more of this show. And uh, as luck would have had it, like as for my degree, I had to do, um, because I was interested in political communication, I had to do an internship, like a media internship of some sort. And I had done, I think the year previously, like a summer job to fulfill that, which was basically I had been screening calls for a local talk show. It was like a classic call-in show. 
a Supreme Court decision would come down, uh, like Hobby Lobby versus United States, about contraception, about abortion, and they would turn to the airwaves and be, if you're for it, cool. If you're against it, cool. And my job would be to sift through and put find the people who we'd put on air. And that job was so hard, and it paid nothing. <laughs> but when I finished the end of my summer in Congress, I was like, even that job was more like fulfilling to me like if 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 this is the base level of what this american life does assuming that i'll never ever work at this american life and so when i, I remember finishing out my year of college and just frantically trying to figure out how i could last minute switch <laughs> i couldn't take up a whole new degree i did not have time all the money to to do that um so i remember just sort of coming back to campus and just trying to do anything and everything that might show that I had some sort of storytelling ability. So I tried to write a lot more for like local university magazines and stuff like that. There I ended up doing a really creative thing, which is like I started making student films with like a bunch of my friends. Like just anything and everything that could just say, well, I'm I'm really interested in the stories and like I'm interested in like policy and maybe I'd make a good journalist. And I remember applying for every single possible internship, fellowship, training scheme, entry-level gig under the sun. And I remember there was one day in particular where there was this job I thought for sure I'd get. It was a, a job in rural Alaska. It was so remote, Janet, that the job posting advertised and really played up the fact that the town that this job was based in had just gotten a new movie theater. <laughs> And I was, but it seemed kind of like an amazing job because they didn't expect anyone to stay longer than a year. So it was a year long contract and you were going to be covering like climate change and a lot of things like indigenous communities up in that part of Alaska. I was like, that's actually really great. And there's only three other people working at this station. So you get to do everything. I now know that actually because of the nature of that job, it's actually one of the most popular like <laughs> entry-level jobs in like the US public radio system. I didn't know that at the time, uh, but I got rejected from that job. And I remember thinking, if I cannot get hired here in rural Alaska, I'm not even asking to be in a major media market in the US. Like if I can get hired in the boonies where more caribou will hear my broadcast than people, like I can't cut it. And I remember I, I like totally gave up for like a week. And then I got like an email, like an urgent, I realized I had like an urgent email from This American Life, basically being like, we've been trying to contact you. <laughs> um, you applied for our fellowship months ago and we want to interview you. And I was just like, wow. And uh, it turned out that This American Life, because they get so, so many applications, they actually do read them all. They used to ask a bunch of questions for the application that was just like, tell us your favorite story, um, just to see how you would tell a story. And they would ask you to do that and then pitch ideas for the show. And then they would do blind application reads. And so I guess they had read that and were like, oh, this person's pretty good. And then they interviewed me. Right away in the interview, it became clear that I was super underqualified compared to <laughs> anybody else um, because that fellowship was extremely competitive. And a lot of people... It's not really aimed as like a first thing out of school training program. It's more of a professional fellowship where if you've been working as a journalist or in some other form of media for a while and you want to learn how to make stories the way they do, it's sort of like a funnel for that. 
But the woman who interviewed me was incredible, absolutely incredible, incredible. Her name's Emily Condon. She was like, well, you're really green, but here's what you should do. You should go get a ton of experience. Here are the sort of places you should be looking at. Here are the programs you should be looking at. And so I actually like literally just did exactly what she told me to do, which is I started applying for internships at smaller local public radio stations. And I moved to Chicago mostly just because I was like, well, I would love to get a job or internship at the station in Chicago, WBEZ. But even if I can't, Maybe I can work at a bar or something in the city until I find a job where I can freelance. And then, yeah, I landed an internship there. I interned for a long time, for like a year. But it was fantastic because at the time, the 2016 election cycle was picking up or about to start. And so a lot of the local political reporters were shifting to do sort of almost national coverage and so they needed people in the newsroom who would do all the other stuff. I remember for months, I was just running all over for Chicago, doing like mini news reports on like a new wolf pup born at the zoo one minute or a teacher strike the next. And it was really a fantastic experience to the point where, you know, I was able to go the next year back to this American life and be like, I'm reapplying. Here's all of this stuff that I've done. And uh, they're like, great. So they gave me the fellowship and I moved to New York for it. I spent like a good six months as a fellow and really helped out with a lot of their like election coverage for that year. At the end of it, Julie Snyder, who's the executive producer of Serial, uh, was like, do you want to come work with us? So that was that was kind of how, how it went. Like in the end, I think I went from getting rejected by that station in Alaska to serial in like two years which is <laughs> which is still wild you know what i really love in that is that you said that you were rejected from that job and you didn't expect to be and it took you a week to get over it i thought oh that's being young you know it takes me six months <laughs> six months to cope with something like that And it sort of goes back to the book as well, a sense of otherness, because obviously Danny is the one who has lost a mother. His father is an extremely interesting person. And, and Roald Dahl's advice to parents in the back of the book is to be sparky and unusual and, you know, uh, kind of don't be don't be boring to your children. But do you do yeah. you think that that sense of otherness that you carried with you, partly because you moved around a lot and also because your family are who they are, do you think that otherness is your calling card do you think because people hmm. don't quite know what to expect you don't sound like everybody else you have a different right, background right. i've never thought about that um <laughs> um i don't know does it give you a kind think... of if it's not a calling card does it give you a kind of i don't know powerful cloak almost yeah i mean i think it definitely protects me in a lot of different ways for sure for sure i mean i i know like for my work for serial in particular I'm embedded in like a courthouse for like a year and a lot of the access I was able to get. I mean, I can't underplay the, or discount the fact that it was because 
a lot of people didn't take me. They did not know who I was. <laughs> uh, there were not a ton of journalists in that courthouse. There were not a lot of black people in that courthouse that were not like defendants for cases. Uh, and I was also really young compared to the other journalists. So you know, I think yeah, it, I definitely in those days used to play it to my advantage of like. I'm just a child basically working on this project and you don't have to take me seriously. And then you do have to take me seriously because uh, I'm already in. Um, no, I think it's definitely helped me. On the other, I think the other thing that your question made me think about is I think in terms of how the stories I choose and how I empathize with people, I think I, I think my experience of being othered and that definition of my life, I think, has helped me like hone in on like the sorts of stories I want to tell and who I want to elevate in my stories. And I think I am drawn to stories of people trying to make sense of a place, trying to make sense of like how their home views them and where they live views them. Um, and I, th I think I am also like, I think interested, I think because of the many different places I've lived and the many different experiences that I've had in just like a range of different sensibilities a lot of people or reporters have an experience when they're interviewing different people, which is like, oh, this person I'm interviewing reminds me of X or Y. Oh, I feel like I understand that person or I know that person. And I think for me, because so much of my life has been trying to understand not having that <laughs> and trying oh, that frame of reference and trying to genuinely understand a place uh, and understand how it works, it's made me much better at my job. For sure, for sure, for sure. But no, that's that's an excellent question. I think definitely I'm at a point in my life now, I'm going to be turning 30 next year, where, you know, the question of home uh, and belonging, I think, is a really big one. And I'm making choices in my life now, wherein both professionally and personally, where I'm actually going to have to answer that question of like what feels like home to me really for the first time. I think, you know, as a child, I was moved around a lot by my parents. As an adult, I think I've been moved around a lot by my job. But I'm finally actually in a place now where I have to actually choose <laughs> what, like where I want to be and who I want to be in a pretty major way. Yeah. Honestly, Emmanuel, thank you so much for taking... I hadn't read this book before, actually. I don't know how I'd left it out oh, wow. of the Roald Dahl canon because I'm really familiar <laughs> with the others and that's reading them to my kids. But it's been absolutely joyful to explore it and mostly to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful this programme exists. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a real pleasure to reread this book. I can't tell you. And say hello to your mum. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.